join. Welcome to Big Tent USA. My name is Leslie Butani, and I'm delighted to be a big part of Big Tent USA, which is building a women-led coalition to protect democracy, to ensure government accountability and transparency, and to increase civic participation. Admittedly, that's a huge undertaking. Thankfully, there are many of us that want to participate. Thanks to all of you for being here today and to Vanessa Thomas and Kitty Douglas for all their work in producing today's episode, Big Tents Don't Build Themselves. We have a jam-packed June, so please go on our website. There's a link in the chat. You can register for upcoming events and view past recordings. On the calendar, we have Wednesday, June 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern time, Academy Award-nominated screenwriter Billy Ray maybe best known for the Hunger Games. Talk about a dystopian society. He will be joined by public opinion researcher Gretchen Barton to break down how voters feel about the state of the nation and how to message across the political divide. A very serious game. On Wednesday, June 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern time, Professor Larry Diamond. He is a professor of political science and sociology at Stanford and he will discuss the 12 steps that lead to an autocracy and what we can do to prevent that from happening here. On June 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern time, Stephen Vladek, University of Texas law professor, will speak about his book, The Shadow Docket, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the Republic. So a bunch of simple issues, irony intended. And now for today's event, it's my privilege to welcome two people whose passion for democracy knows no limits. First, Maxim Thorne, the CEO of Civic Influencers, who will talk about the amazing impact the organization is having on youth voter engagement. Maxim earned both his BA and JD from Yale University and has dedicated his life and career to empowering young people, especially those from historically marginalized communities. He's held high-level positions at the Andrew Goodman Foundation, the Human Rights Campaign, and the NAACP, to name just a few. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Rutgers University. Another Yale graduate, Rohan Preston, has been lead theater critic at the Star Tribune in Minneapolis since 1998. He has interviewed and written on Arthur Miller, August Wilson, El Edward Albee, Tony Kushner, Susan Laurie Parks, and a host of other arts luminaries. He led a Star Tribune team that won an Emmy for a documentary on the historic 2008 elections and has twice served on the Pulitzer jury for drama. Mr. Preston, Preston previously wrote for the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times. Maxim, Rohan, on behalf of the entire Big Tent family, thank you for joining us for what is sure to be a lively and informative conversation about the critical work Civic Influencers is doing to engage and empower young voters. Thank you very much, uh, Leslie, and uh, welcome, uh, Maxim. It's my honor uh, to be here with all of you today. Um, Maxim, we'll just jump right in. I. As reading uh, your op-ed, um, that was your, your commentary. That was so wonderful, um, and I, I was struck just by the phrase "this um, sort of generational gerrymandering." Um, uh, talk. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? 
and how that fits into your remit as uh, an organization trying to bring young people, uh, give voice, give platform, uh, encourage uh, young people to step into their power. Thank you, Rohan. Uh, thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Kitty and Vanessa. Uh, really, really glad to be back here. And uh, I brought a friend who is Rohan Preston. Uh, because, you know, it's it's kind of intimidating uh, being at Big Tent and knowing how this group is so committed to this really important work at this particular moment in time. I coined uh, generational gerrymandering as a way to understand what is happening in this country. We understand gerrymandering. And we understand, many of us in this room, voter suppression. But there's a whole new form that has taken on a great power, which is a way of the right to remove young people from their voting rights. And we have now recorded in the big uh, Washington Post scoop, Cleta Mitchell talking about removing young people uh, from the voting ranks. She was attacking polling sites and organizations like ours, saying, what are these organizations doing uh, on these campuses to get young people out to vote and removing that opportunity? And DeSantis, of course, has already been banning polling sites from college campuses and Texas. And generational gerrymandering is a way to understand, just as they have packed and cracked, if you know those terms, black and brown communities from the, and urban communities from being able to impact elections, they're doing that with young people, literally preventing the next generation from participating in our, in our democracy. And that's why civic influencers exist, to in fact make sure that our democracy continues and that we have a future. And this is important not just for America, but for the entire world who looks to us as, as a beacon for democracy. Uh, I wanna pause here for a second and thank you, Rohan, uh, because when I mentioned about being intimidated and a little nervous about being here, I wanted to have a friend who could also help keep me on track because I can truly go off the rails <laughs> on some of these things. I have known Rohan now for more than 30 years. We went to college uh, together and yeah. we found in a newspaper. Uh, Rohan was the editor-in-chief. I was the business uh, uh, business head or whatever that was called back then. And Publisher. that's- <laughs> Oh yeah. So Rohan is the content person who keeps on message. I can go all over the place. Um, the other person just by uh, interest was Minjin Lee, who was one of our writers. Minjin of course is, has recently become even more famous for writing Pachenko. But our purpose then remains today. How do we amplify young people's voices? How do we amplify young people who are marginalized? And both Rohan and I were recent immigrants to the United States. And the future we wanted then is what we want now for young people, to be able to enjoy the promise of America and the American dream that I lived, I certainly, coming from Guyana, would never have expected to be able to go to Yale and Yale Law School and to have the career and be able to give back to this great country. 
And I am so grateful and so for, for my personal history and for the amazing things that Rohan has done serving well, on the surprise committee. And I hope other people have that chance. And and I, I will just say, and I don't want to make this about me at all, but I I, I am a testimony as well to that uh, to that dream and to those opportunities that have been hard won. And I want to thank, um, and I do this um, privately and publicly, um, all the people who have sacrificed, you know, the, the people who marched, the people who served um, on, on committees, the people who protested, the people who, um, who died. Um, you know, I am an immigrant um, who's come here and and um, and my parents' wildest grandparents' wildest dreams, in a way, and and um, so and it's similar. And and the work I do now as a critic um, is, and, and the field I'm in, performing arts and and to a degree architecture and design, um, it's all about building citizenship, right? And it's and it's and theater comes out of a tradition of twenty five hundred years. Um, from the Greeks of how do you build civic institutions? How do you essentially expand uh, democracy so that people have the capacity to do uh, the work that they're called to do or the capacity to fully actualize their dreams? Um, um, can you talk a little bit now, Maxim, about just like, set the scene uh, of where we are in the world um, right now and, and what the threats may be and 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 how um how young people can save us <laughs> thank you rohan i love what you said just now because we are very much trying to tell the story how do we do this work we tell stories people respond emotionally and intellectually to stories and young people's stories their ability to do relational organize, organizing is key to our ability to influence them towards democracy and their ability to influence each other. To start, I'd like to share a video that was done by, for us, by Hugo Perez, who has been nominated for an Oscar and other awards and was recently in Cannes. And for those of you who are new to civic influencers, here is the beginning of our story. At Civic Influencers, we recognize the passion that young people have on the issues they care about. It's really important that young people get the opportunity to learn that they can connect the things they care about, their core values, to voting. It's not focusing on a particular candidate or a particular race. It's focusing on issues. It actually creates a habit that lasts a lifetime, is this understanding and awareness of the role we all play and the responsibility we each have to keep our democracy strong. If you teach a student to vote when they are 18, they will continue to vote for the rest of their lives. I feel like so often the youth is left out of the conversation and we are the ones with the power and we are the future. So I think the work of this organization is so impactful and so needed in regards to, in regards to moving us as a country forward because the youth, again, we have the power to swing an election. Your work is um, ultimately about the protection of our democracy uh, and your strategy 
to engage in peer-to-peer -peer communication in targeted areas um, is going to be uh, is going to be difference making. Civic Influencers is data-driven. Most organizations and almost every campaign is overlooking the community college, the trade school. When they realize that just a handful of their friends could make all the difference in an election, that gives them a lot of power. The work that Civic Influencers does is not just important, it's critical um, to saving our democracy. Um, I'm honored to, to stand alongside them as a partner um, and in solidarity, in solidarity with this work um, and going to continue to do it here in Florida but also across the country. So that laser focus that is data-driven and our tested interventions like getting polling sites on college campuses, getting student IDs that are compliant with voter IDs. It's so important that the young people of this country have a voice and understand what their power is in civic activation. This organization focuses on it all year round and so I think it's so integral in regards to moving this work forward to really focus on it year round. So I just think Civic Influencers has a great approach. This nonpartisan, nonprofit organization can really play a role in engaging and inspiring young people to help save our democracy. What we do is we recognize that four million 17-year-olds become 18 every year. That means a whole generation, four million young people, become voters every year. That is our future, and that's why we are doing what we're doing. I'm really proud to be the CEO of Civic Influencers. It is the most amazing opportunity at the most pivotal time in our history when American democracy is really threatened. And what we do that distinguishes us from any other organization is that we use data. We use data to find where we can be most effective. Those geographic locations where there are tight margins. We also use data to determine what are the right interventions and curricula so that when we fund and deploy students on these campuses, including and especially community colleges, trade, technical, and vocational schools, which no one else does, they will have the greatest impact. And so our secret sauce is this data-driven approach for locations, and the strategy for that location. And that's what has made us so incredibly impactful beyond our wildest dreams actually in 2022. So Maxim, I'm, I'm so curious and, and heartened and excited that you mentioned community colleges and trade schools. Um, this, is, this is a demographic um, that's, that you never see being addressed um, in the news that way, or um, even in fundraising appeals or anything like that. Do you mind speaking a little bit more about what's, what, what the thinking is? And, and, and I think I know, because you, you want to broaden um, the, the stakeholders here and, and to bring everyone in, but do you mind speaking a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Young people were never taken very seriously. As, um, as a cohort of voters. People felt they were apathetic and they don't vote. And to the extent that people were doing this work, they were doing this work only with four-year universities, mm. you know, like 
uh, Ohio State or Yale or et cetera, right? And, and they were parachuting in, in say September of an election year and exiting the day after Tuesday of that election. We have changed that entire model. We are year round. And what we noticed uh, is everyone was ignoring folks at community colleges. Let me, I, I will go back and change what I said. A lot of people were ignoring folks at community colleges, trade, technical, and vocational schools. And however, there was a certain group that were targeting young people at trade, technical, and vocational schools uh, to disenfranchise them. The populations mm. of community colleges, trade, technical, vocational schools are primarily black and brown and low income. They also tend to be disproportionately uh, pro-democracy voters. We know that young people in general, there's a 28 point preference for pro-democracy candidates. That's just a data point, it's just very true. And that increases when you're dealing with youth of color and uh, low income youth. And those are the specific targets for voter suppression and generational gerrymandering. We have seen historically black colleges and universities. We've seen tribal campuses. We've seen uh, community colleges and every school that I'm talking about literally being packed and fracked and cracked. Which, what does that mean? It means that you could have like North Carolina A&T that is being divided into four different districts which means that they're completely diluting the ability of those students to have an impact on who wins an election. Or we've seen the, the, the opposite, where they're packing all of youth of color into one district so that they cannot impact anything in the state or any other um, uh, uh, election in, in that state. With that recognition, especially after COVID, and we've seen this spiral, this virus of voter suppression, we decided that it was really important to uh, fight for young people, young people of color and marginalized people. And when the margins are so tight, when the margins are so tight, like for example, in 2022, Lauren Boebert won by 565 votes or John Duarte won by 565, or we have um, other folks winning by less than 1%, 34 of the folks who won last year won by less than 1%. When you get community college students out, they can actually swing that election and make their voices heard. And so that was it. Now let, now let me tell you some numbers. During COVID, we had a, the most dramatic fall off in attendance at four-year colleges, colleges in general. And since during and since COVID, a lot of folks have decided to spend time in community colleges and have a hybrid. And so we've actually seen community college enrollment go up vis-a-vis four-year colleges. Because a lot of people didn't want to spend that kind of money for a Zoom experience in a four-year college. What we also have seen is a dramatic increase in high school seniors graduating and going to trade technical and vocational schools almost 5.5 million, 16% of high school students are going to trade technical and vocational schools. And so unless you disrupt the model of where you organize young people and young people who will help our democracy and save it, you were gonna lose our democracy. So that's why we focused on this. And I, I, would, I would wonder also if, if, it, if it, this helps to 
uh, refute and diffuse the argument that I sometimes hear that if you're speaking in proper sentences, you're elite, right? That and so um, we have. Um, I'm not explaining this well, but but the elite uh, people consider college graduates elite, and 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 that and 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 um, and elitist, frankly, and so not um, uh, not uh, being quote unquote of the people. Um, I, I wonder if this helps to to change that narrative some. Absolutely, absolutely. When we talk about democracy and amplifying young people's voices, it also means meeting them where they are in the languages in which they speak um, and at the level in which they engage. Right. Uh, <laughs> when when you have my kind of background, which is not growing up privileged and in a foreign country, you understand multiple ways of of which wh whether it's pidgin English or Creolese or standard English or the Queen's English, depending on or French, if you had to study it, or in my case, Mandarin. Um, you learn how important it is to uh, speak in an authentic way, and when you're dealing with young people. Um, peer-to-peer -peer relational organizing at their own level is incredibly important. But it's not only important for young people. I was blown away uh, by a book that was just written by Sally Sussman, who is the head of communications at Pfizer and was also in a similar position at Estee Lauder. And one of the things that she said, and I, and it's, and I say this because the business community understands our approach. She said, when they were dealing with COVID, they realized that you cannot speak to the American public or other uh, communities by using celebrities to convince them to take the vaccine. You had to use trusted real people in the community, like micro-influencers that could communicate within the community to get each other to take the vaccine. That's exactly right. And by the way, that's why our cost per vote is lower than other organizations. It is relational organizing, just like Pfizer is doing with the vaccine, to get micro-influencers on a campus at a community college, at a trade school, at a vocational school, using their own data that we share and help them understand and train and educate and create curricula around that can convince each other. And so we don't pay for ads on cable television <laughs> or television or in the New York Times. That does not work with young people. But what we do is train and fund young people on these campuses and get them understand what the margin was and how many folks they have to register and to move and turn out to swing the election in the on the issues they care about, which are like climate change and which is like abortion rights and LGBTQ justice and student debt and so forth. We, we have a question, um, and by the way, I encourage everyone to put your questions in the chat. We'll be able to, we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Um, but one of the questions um, from one of our, um, our readers, viewers here is um, uh, for you, Maxim, uh, you mentioned how data drives your work. Um, how do you use data in your message to inform your messaging? What a brilliant question. Um, and our uh, incredible um, achievement 
over the last couple of years. Uh, I, I put I put in the chat room, folks, um, our website, which I really encourage you to go to. And I'm going to share my screen again uh, to show you the kind of work that makes us successful. Because the messaging that I would use or we use in Madison, Wisconsin is dramatically different than what we would use in Albany, Georgia or El Paso, Texas. You know, the issues in Florida, like Parkland, very, very high on mass shootings and gun regulations. We were surprised that young people in Texas were really concerned about losing abortion rights. Yes, really concerned about the power grid. In Madison, clean water. So what we do, we have been polling. We've been polling, you'll see this here. Young people regularly on what issues concern them and where and how they talk about it. So we have, we have full-time staff in all of our priority states, right, that oversee. And they're trained, they get a full salary and benefits, unlike other organizations. We keep them year-round. And they have their ears on the ground. And our hundreds, we had over 700 last year, funded civic influencers, give us feedback. And they help disseminate these surveys. And you can see here the issues that young people say they care about. And then with that, we test the messaging that resonates with them. National mes messaging does not work ever, as all businesses know, it doesn't work in this area either. So we tailor these messages and these issues to what young people say they care about in these different locations. And you, we also show how it changes. So if you go up and down this, you will actually see how we're doing it. And it's really exciting, but it's making us very, very effective. One one of the um, other questions that I have for you, and this is it's a broader question. Um, and I, I saw the uh, musical Oklahoma. It was reimagined a few years ago, and um, and it, and it was really alienating for a lot of people because it wasn't warm and fuzzy, and it was postmodern and crazy. But what was interesting about this show was um, the idea of, of story that we touched on earlier. Uh, America's story is changing. Um, it used to be, bring me your tired, your, you know, it used to be one of welcome, one of immigrants. Um, you know, obviously there, there, there are other parts of the story too that people don't acknowledge, you know, we have, um, with and treatment of Native Americans and Japanese and, you know, and bondage and all of that. But um, it, it used to be a story of aspirationally of, of welcome, right? And that narrative now is, is in question. How do you, in, how do civic influencers, when you go out into the world, um, tap into or reinscribe the, 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 the American story and what is that story if it's one thing, you know? Yes, so one of the most important things that I learned from Julian Bond, who was my mentor, is the importance of music, the arts, visual and verbal storytelling, right? That is, all, that is sort of common to humans around the globe. 
And so how we tell the story and how we can rep representation, how we can represent a different narrative. So what you just said resonated with me because when I share what, what you just said, young people on our staff and these funded civic influencers on these cameras said, that is not my experience. Like, like I can get killed going to, or my brother or sister can get killed in kindergarten and are buying bulletproof vests. Mm. Mm. That is not a, that was, that has never been part of my history as a student, even through law school and after. Um, but it gives them a different narrative, but their narrative of today has to be heard. Uh, and I recommend very strongly um, reverse mentoring, reverse mentoring. Sally Sussman also, by the way, mentions in her book, after seeing the movie, The Intern, which had Robert De Niro as, the, as a much senior uh, intern to, I think it was Anne Hathaway, that she hired the former vice chair of Citigroup to be her intern after he retired. Different, but I think it would be really important for older generations to listen to young people so that they can understand why they value, number one, climate change, why they value LGBTQ equality, mm -hmm. why they value racial justice, and, while, and why they do not have binaries. Gen Z is amazingly different in a wonderful way than older generations. And here's one. These things are intersectional. They don't give up on climate change because they also want to promote LGBTQ equality. They don't trade off women's rights and equality because they care about racial justice. That kind of bargaining does not happen. And because we understood that, because we understood it with our data and our own values, we knew there was not going to be a red tsunami last, last year. We knew it. And the results are spectacular. I want to share this with you, uh, Rohan, um, and, and everyone. So here is uh, our success. Young people, even if you listen to James Carville or Tucker Carlson on opposite ends of the spectrum, it was never going to be about gas prices. It was never going to be about inflation for the millennial and Gen Z voter. They were voting on climate change, gun violence, LGBTQ equality, uh, and uh, abortion rights. That was, that, that, that was not gonna shift because we had inflation. You will see on this chart, our proof of concept. The yellow is the population of the campuses we organized. And look at the yellow compared to the margin of victory Right, the net votes that say, I'm glad you asked me this, Linda, uh, uh, Raphael Warner got, or Fetterman got, or the Wisconsin governor who's been in the press again today, or the Arizona governor. We are very, very strategic, given limited resources. We would love to be everywhere, but where we go is where we can win, and where young people that we organize can actually have a substantial impact on the margin. And we targeted 22 districts last year. We actually had ranked 88 districts. We, we only had funding for 22. What's remarkable is that where we were, except for one in Florida, <laughs> um, we were able, uh, young people were able to, to, to elect pro-democracy candidates. 
where we weren't, even though we had targeted, we, if we had money, like Colorado 3, like a lot of New York and California, like the seven that flipped in a different direction. Uh, had we had funding, uh, I think the, these same results would have been true. That this kind of targeting on issues that young people care about and helping them connect that issue to voting, helping them connect that issue to voting moves the needle. So when you read in the New York Times yesterday, that young people are, were angry to Cook Report, which is also a quote in the New York Times said, the reason that young people are voting is that they're angry. Yes, very true. We've helped educate them. Getting them to connect that anger to voting is the step that we take. Now you might all remember in 2020, when President Trump won the election and a lot of folks descended on DC uh, for the for the women's march, you, you, you meant twenty sixteen, Max. Oh, sorry, my God, yes, yeah. twenty sixteen. Um, in twenty sixteen, when they polled the people who were involved in that march, over one point, I think one point five million, almost no one had registered to vote, and almost no young people, eighty to twenty nine, had registered to vote. The same is true for the Black Lives Matter movement. When you poll the people marching, they had not registered to vote. They're angry, they're, they are, they're, they're, their anger is real and they're taken to the streets, but they don't know how voting helps resolve the issues that are concerned about. And our secret sauce is making that connection for them and getting these kinds of results. As you're talking, this is this is so great. I, I, um, as you're talking, I am thinking about all the ways that civic engagement impacts everything, all of our lives. Um, voting is crucial, of course, um, and um, you know, in this period, we've had the you know the overturning of Roe. We've had um, all kinds of um, um, we've the gutting of of various um, civil rights legislation. We have had um, federal judges in Texas to make rulings that, 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 that restrict um, sort of um, bodily autonomy, healthcare, uh, all kinds of stuff, right? It's, it's, we're in, we're in, a, in a period of tremendous ferment, upheaval, and people are seeing that and you're saying, you're talking about the anger and, and giving it a direction, giving it a, a, a channel. Do you, do you and, and, and one, of, one of our questions that came in, in the chat was like, what's the plan for 2024? We mentioned earlier that um, there are going to be 4 million new people voting a year, right? So what's the plan for, for these new 8 million um, voters and, and others coming along? Yeah. Uh, before we get to 2024, we have a plan. I'm going to share that momentarily. Let's talk about voting in 2023 and down ballot elections. One of the big shifts we made in 2021 was to become year round because there's no off year. All of these voter suppression tactics and laws get passed in these quote unquote off federal election years like this year and like in 2021. And what was remarkable about our work say in Wisconsin uh, or New Hampshire or Colorado, and I'll get to that, or uh, Jacksonville, 
or Chicago's mayor race is that young people are turning out in record numbers in a year in which there's no federal election. So here is an example of our remarkable work and other folks. And we don't take all the credit alone, but we are taking credit for the strategic turnout and engagement of young people in targeted districts, especially at community colleges, trade, technical, and vocational schools that you will not hear. And the level of analysis I'm giving you, I'm trying to water it down so it isn't like painful. You won't hear from anyone else. We can stand by our proofs. And we are open to these conversations. Virginia special election this year, we were organizing that last year. It was the first time an African-American woman is being sent to Congress from Virginia ever in history. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida's mayoral race, who would have thought a, a, a non-Republican and a woman for the first time in history would win that election? Chicago elected the most progressive mayor when everyone's saying it would be in the Ed uh, Eric Adams and other directions, right? Wisconsin Supreme Court, a remarkable victory of this judge from Wisconsin, from Milwaukee. Colorado Springs, the first time since the early 90s that a non-Republican, and this is a, a this is a, a, I believe it's a, 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 it's a Somali immigrant who is now the mayor and not a Republican of Colorado Springs. Uh, this trend proves, and by the way, dumb ballot elections are so much tighter in general than federal elections, which are now really, really tight. And this allows us this year to help young people on local issues, issues they care about, realize they have the power, they can do it. They're proving it every day in the most remarkable way, and they can do it again in 2024. And so this leads us to 2024. Oh, by the way, I have data for days that will make you optimistic <laughs> and hopeful. So on our board is a woman, a remarkable woman named Rabbi Jan Orbach. And she has been teaching me the difference between optimism and hope. Uh, optimism, you can, you know, it's an emotional thing of whether you feel, uh, you know, an outcome is what you would like. Hope is something you work for. So I'm always, always hopeful because if I don't work for it, it won't happen. I think that's all of you. I also am optimistic because when you look at the data, you will see that Gen Z and millennials um, and given generational momentum, which really means that you know, folks die and others are born, the movement is to preserve democracy and make it more inclusive. Come that, that slide, Maxim, because it's, it's it's astonishing. And and if you don't mind, I mean, <clears throat> the coverage, our news coverage from mainstream uh, media, of which I'm a part, um, generally focuses on the older voters. Mm -hmm. um, and this would argue that 64%, if 64% of, of, of the um, you know, Gen Zers uh, um, or, or of the young people are voting. Um, that's extraordinary. I mean, that that's and that's um, what you're talking about. Hope as well. Do you just 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 go a little bit through this before you you go to the next one? Right. It is it is something that should make us feel really hopeful. It is also something that I hope you will why you will fund us because what we're doing is sharing this data and the messaging and the granular stuff that will work 
in El Paso, in California, in New York, in Michigan, in Florida, Arizona, Nevada, North Carolina, and so forth. People need this, including campaigns, which have been a disaster, a disaster. I went to a meeting and I heard about you know, these leaders um, from various political parties talking about taking a $1.5 million ad in the New York Times and millions going to cable TV and millions going to television. None of those media young people are engaged in at all. You guys have kids or know young people or have grandkids? Do they read the New York Times print edition? Do they look at cable TV or, or, or television news? Absolutely not. And none of our data would support spending money. If this is our future, you should all be adopting and promoting our methodology. And I have been saying this to various leaders uh, who are engaged in politics and campaigns, that they are wasting money when our victories are dependent on this generation. And uh, there are only two other sides of this, so I do want to use it. Look, look at those born. You will see that the younger generations increased turnout. Now, I know that earlier reports in the Times um, and in the Washington Post, et cetera, talked about, oh, this was the second highest uh, turnout. Young people didn't turn out as much as they did in 2018. It's why I reject other people's stuff because they're using averages. I mean, here's what I mean by that. My body temperature average is perfect, but my head is on fire and my feet have frostbite, but my average temperature is perfect. I'm losing my head and losing my feet. Averaging the data does not tell us anything what's actually going on in Wisconsin, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, and Florida. You have to go. And so what we actually know now is that 14 states had record turnout, the highest in history of young people. And if you look at the, the data, this, this age data on your screen, you'll actually see the yellow is movement, more people from 2018. To, to last year's election, right? And you'll see. But look who decreased. Those born from 1944, from 1944 to 44, those who were born from 1945 to 49, et cetera. So the momentum on young people's values is on our side. This is also incredible to think about and to look at, but you will see again, um, the movement from 2018 to 2022 or 2014 to 2022. And the impact of education and so forth, because since we're dealing with higher education, um, we take that into account. What is remarkable as, 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 a, as, a, as a data point and why our strategy makes so much sense is that there was no change in young black people or Latinx people voting whether they had a BA or not a BA. That's important. We can value young people at a community college, at trade, technical, and vocational school as much as we can value someone at Harvard, Yale, NYU, UC Berkeley, Stanford, and so forth. And a lot of folks don't do that. And we are doing that. So one, one of the questions, and um, I, I don't want this to break your flow here, but one of the questions was, um, 
are you, how is your presence on social media? Um, like this is, you know, some of this is new information or is information that's not getting out. I will answer that. It needs funding. Uh, it's, it's a must do. I know a lot of folks are so frustrated because they say the kids are on their cell phones and they're on social media. I get it. That train has left the station. <laughs> so we're investing in TikTok. We're investing in all the various kinds of social media. Uh, and we're bringing young people to do it because do not ask me to make a TikTok video. I cannot do it. Um, the reason I'm going to pause here, I just got a text. Uh, so thank you so much. Someone has just um, said that she will match multi-year uh, in 2023 and 2024 up to $125,000. So she, <laughs> I can't say her name. Uh, she will match up to $125,000 this year and next year because she believes this is something she has not heard and wants to promote. I will add to this, uh, we need funding to get more involved in social media because that is how young people, that is how young people talk to each other. And they're doing it in, in such an innovative, creative way with dance and music and funny stuff in which the story of the music or performance is completely at odds with what they're talking about, which is voting rights and voting and, and voter registration, et cetera. That is the way of the future. It is not New York Times print ads, it is not cable television, and it's not television. It is reaching young people where they are. And we have been doing it more and more. And by the way, as a data point, we are number one. So if you know LinkedIn or Facebook, et cetera, you can look at the analytics. And what we have shown is that we are number one for any organization or group in our engagement of young people on social media, which is amazing given our recent start with this. These are the races on your screen of 2023, right? Of 2023. Let me get, let me get rid of this box so you can actually see, right? And you could see we, we have some work left. But if you go down this list, you'll see how effective we have been on getting young people on campuses engaged this year. This is our strategy for 2024. You'll see the Senate races on the left, the presidential swing states on the right, and the all-important North Carolina governor's race on the bottom. In green, in green, the reason I highlighted green, those are on the Senate side, those are sort of a double win because there's an important Senate race, as well as that is a battleground state for the presidential election. So you see, we have Michigan has an open seat because Debbie Stabenow uh, is, has reti is retiring. Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Ohio. We also included the other places, Wisconsin, sorry, West Virginia, Florida, California, Montana. A little more difficult to do that with any degree of hope would mean significant investment. But with our targeting strategy, which we call a trifecta strategy, which means that young people on the issues they care about connected to voting can win the presidency, the House, and the Senate. And so here is the House. Did I, here is the House. 34. There are more possibilities, but this is, this is the easy, and I hope this makes you optimistic and hopeful. These are the 
easy races that young people can swing on the issues they care about. Now, you know, we're nonpartisan. This is about growing young people's power. It's about helping them connect the issues they care about to voting. And on that basis, they can swing these elections. It's amazing, it's amazing. But look at the numbers, 546, 565, uh, uh, 1,600. You know, this is the marching band. This is the gospel choir. This is the cheerleading group. This is the dorm. It is easy. We make voting easy. The conversation is never gonna be, oh, you need to swing 4 million votes. You don't need to swing 4 million votes. You just gotta get out an extra 600 folks who did not vote in the last election and maybe double it. So get both the gospel choir and the marching and the football team. And then you are certainly, get your sorority, get your uh, fraternity, get your glee club. That is the kind of messaging to show how easy it actually is to swing these elections. One, one of the questions that, that came through here as well is, um, um, are you registering people to vote on campuses? Do you have ambassadors there doing that? Absolutely. So let me take this off so I could talk and you could see me. Um, it is so important to drive up a demand to vote. What do I mean by that? People vote because they care about an issue. People don't vote because of the mechanics of voting. So when folks are riled up about the attacks on LGBT people and trans folks, you say, great, now register to vote. When they're upset about Dobbs and all the craziness of 1872 statutes now uh, regulating women's rights to uh, control their own body, now register and vote. It's not the other way around. And so we learned that because organizations like us, including us prior to 2021, Focus on the mechanics of registering to vote and being able to, to vote at, at, at a polling site. We help young people who get angry and who care about issues like climate change and mass shooting, help them. They are motivated. I don't have to spend money like you hear some people on campaigns saying converting folks into Rust Belt, which tend to be working class, straight white men uh, to vote. Young people have a strong preference for progressive policies and the issues that they care about. We help them register to vote. So once you can do that, then they want to know, well, how do I do it? How do I do it? And then we go through the mechanics of how you do it. And then we help the campus itself, not just the students. We work with the administrators. We work with the administrators on how they can get a polling site, how they can get a shuttle how they can get poll workers, young people get trained as poll workers, and how they can resist some of the voter suppression that they have. And that then sees uh, uh, an exponential rise in student uh, registering to vote and voting, as we saw in now 14 states. The data was long in coming, folks, but that data should excite all of you. That's wonderful. So we are we're coming to um, a close pretty soon here, but we still have a a number of questions, and and um, I'm really, really just thankful uh, to you, Maxing. Um, uh, I hope you can drink some water and take a breath um, during this <laughs> this moment here. <laughs> uh, but just, but really thankful for the work uh, you're doing, and 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 in 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 building um, civic uh, culture, voting culture, in 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 increasing the stakeholders, and giving um, people a platform and a voice. 
here. Can you talk um, a little bit um, more uh, about hope? Um, you, you made the distinction between hope and optimism earlier. Um, and, and that was a question that was actually come up uh, as well from one of our um, viewers here. Um, do you mind um, just talking about the work that re hope requires? Yeah. Is it too abstract? No, no, not at all. Okay. Uh, hope without action is useless. Hope is not, I stay in my room and I hope. It's like, it's like when I hear people talk about thoughts and prayers in addressing mass shootings. Useless. We give action some, some discrete steps, right? How you register, how many young people. So we have, at minimum, two ambassadors. We call them civic influencers, by the way, not ambassadors. We have at least two civic influencers per campus. Some institutions have more than one campus. So if you were like a Miami-Dade that has seven campuses, that's at least 14. We had 38 because it was so important. But that was the one that went in a different direction. Um, each of them gets at least 500 bucks per term, four terms a year. That's 2,000 bucks. We also give them a stipend to understand the data so that they can convincingly talk to each other. Um, and then, of course, we give money to help fund activities on the campus and other arrangements to get people registered and to vote. So that's how it that's how it happens. That's how the sauce or the sausage is made. And this is really exciting. Hi, Beryl. You're muted. While Beryl is, is unmuting, let me show you what makes me hopeful and optimistic. Look at these numbers, folks. Look at these numbers. It's only five, five, five uh, in, the, in the house, just five, right? That changes who controls the house. So when I talk about trifecta, the presidency, the house and the Senate, these numbers are thrilling to give you optimism. And if you are not caught up in campaign strategy, which is a failure and campaign lingo, which is monsters and demons, either Nancy Pelosi's a demon or Mitch McConnell's a demon. None of the names you saw are like necessarily demons or monsters, but they are places that young people can prevail. And I'll get to you in a second. And then look at the other part. These numbers, all of you should leave. I failed if you're not optimistic. By 2024, Gen Z will make up 45% of eligible. You're lying. So, Beryl, we can hear you now. Okay. All right. Let's go back to Beryl. So, I'll leave this on the screen. Beryl, you ready? I'm mute. I have a quick question. Yeah. Uh, I think this presentation is fabulous, but I'm wondering how you pick civic influencers who are not only smart and get it, but who are not shy and don't, you know, feel uncomfortable approaching people, maybe in the student union or in the dorm how you know that they will have sort of that uh, secret sauce, so to speak, of being outgoing, friendly, and interesting. We don't, Beryl. We, we do have a matrix for choosing, but it's not what you said. It's not what you said. And let me give you an example. 
when you looked at when we studied our prior fellows before 2021, and this is true for the whole country, folks who get involved in this work are political science majors, feminist study majors, uh, multicultural study majors, et cetera. The lowest performing group of students are STEM students, math, bio, you know, microbiology, physics, et cetera. Just those students could swing an election. But we needed to diversify and find folks who could speak to each other, right? I may not necessarily, maybe I'm too flamboyant, appeal to a physics class or a math class. You know, I had my first conversations with investment bankers recently, different, different kind of experience, right? So we actually try to find people that are like them. It's relational organizing. And if you've ever dealt with young people on the spectrum, they communicate quite differently than some other, with each other quite differently. And so we aim to get folks who resonate with enough, not with everyone, they're not celebrities, but micro-targeting. Because if you were micro-targeting, say the Pueblo Community College in, in Colorado three, where that candidate won by 565 votes, you want folks who understand that culture, which may not be the New York culture. And so we, what we try to do is make sure representation matters, language matters, and a whole variety of cultural experiences. And we do equip all of them with the same thing, the data that applies to them, uh, what messaging and what issues, and that's it. But there is no one size fits all in, in our model. Does that make sense to you, Barrow? Yeah, I see a race. Absolutely. I'm hoping okay. to pick, you know, you pick people who can talk to the people who they're sent out to talk to. Um, yes. It's not going to be one size fits all. So that's great. Congratulations. Thank you, Greg. And, I, and I want, when I mention reverse mentoring, I want to mention something. Some folks, other folks will be uncomfortable with, right? I am so proud of our civic influencers on these campuses. They are remarkably different. We have white trans, black trans, who are also physics majors. We have, you know, Somali immigrants who are uh, not interested in climate change, but really interested in immigrant rights. We have folks who are one issue, uh, meaning that they're issues of that state, but that's also multicultural, abortion rights and, and racial justice and mass shooting. They're all different. They all speak. It's as different as Cardi B from Barbara Streisand. And that is a beautiful symphony. It is not all the New York, New York Philharmonic. It is a, an amazing sense of, uh, of sort of foreign and local uh, community theater and Broadway. And I hope you get it. <laughs> Keep going with those metaphors, Max. <laughs> and I want to wrap this up you guys have given us all of your attention for this hour and i think we could have kept going um please do go to the website because you can see the actual civic influencers on the website on each of the campuses they're they're so cute and wonderful and thank you so much for attending and uh we look forward to seeing you at future big tent events go to the website thanks thank again everybody thank you very much